Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Elena Nino. Uh, she's an associate specialist in uh, what she deals with apiculture, you know, the raising of bees. She's part of the uh, Department of Entomology and Nematology at University of California, Davis. So we're going to talk about her work. Lena, thanks for coming. Thank you, Rich, for having me. Yeah, I enjoy talking to uh, bee people, as I call them. They seem to be very nice and friendly and really uh, interested in what they study bees. So I'm sure it'll be the same here. Very passionate group of people. Well, good. Tell me about your background. Like, How did you first think of bees and decide to work with them and on them? So I didn't start with bees, um, but I guess if I think back at my life, um, my dad actually kept bees when I was little. So I've been around bees always, and we kept bees in skeps, which is really cool. It's this sort of old school hive that you would see in cartoons or any books. So it was really neat to always be around bees. And then I kind of forgot about them until I got into college. I was always interested in animals and agriculture, agriculture. Um, so I started off by just attending some entomology classes, which, of course, is the study of insect. And I didn't uh, start working with bees right away. It took a little while for me to end up working with bees. But I started off by working in veterinary entomology, which is learning about uh, pestiferous insects on animals. And I worked quite a bit in dairy and beef farms. And then I also worked in poultry, and I ended up getting my master's working on dung beetles, which are also very fascinating insects. Um, and oh. then I ended up, I know, right? And then I ended up finally working on honeybees. I was thinking about my future, right? And I thought, hey, I would love to continue my graduate work. And I went to a few different lab meetings uh, when I was at NC State, um, and I ended up in a lab meeting of a professor, Christina Grosinger, who was also my great mentor. 
and they talked about honeybees and understanding what regulates pheromone production in honeybee queens. And it was just fascinating to me. And that's how I ended up working with bees. It was really kind of an accident, a happy accident. Well, if you would tell me about some of the other animals you worked with, like dung beetles. It sounds mm-hmm. like you did a lot of work with them. What was interesting about them? What did you learn? So dung beetles, I always hate to disappoint people, but not all of them are dung rollers. So usually when you think about a dung beetle, uh, you think of a beetle rolling a, a little ball of dung across the desert somewhere. That's not the case necessarily uh, it, when where I was you working. Know, you know, it would be a, a bad joke. You asked the oh. beetle, do you still do that? They said, been there, dung that. Ah, for, I love for it. That joke. Gonna, actually, that's a great joke. I'm going to use that if you don't mind. Uh, sure, yes. yeah, so most of the dung beetles are actually within the dung paddy, right? So they live inside the dung pad and then they live underneath the dung pad in the ground. So that was one of the things that kind of surprised me too when I first started working with them. But they're fascinating. And really, if we didn't have dung beetles, we probably would be covered in poop. So What do you mean, like an animal poops and then they they find the dung and they hang out in it and feed off of it for a few days and move on or what that's right they feed off of it they will use uh the manure to actually reproduce so they will put their young inside the dung ball and they will bury it down so they're really great for nutrient recycling in the soil uh, but they essentially remove the dung from the surface of the earth interesting yeah yeah what other creatures did you work with that you mentioned um, I worked with lots of different flies, but the uh, flies and then other pest beetles. Um, I worked with horn flies, stable flies, house flies. I actually at one point even had a colony of earwigs, which we were trying to study to see if we can use them for control of pest flies in poultry. So I really have worked with quite a few different insects, but mostly within the realm of sort of veterinary and medical entomology. So mosquitoes, I worked with mosquitoes quite a bit as well, but that kind of covers it. Well, when you said you worked in the, you worked in the poultry industry, Mm -hmm. did you work with chickens or the poultry industry, like the, you know, the the slicing and dicing of chickens to make them into food for people. No, we were, I worked with uh, making chicken lives better. Chickens also have, uh, pests on them. So for example, one of the pests that we worked on was red mite in poultry. So we were trying to investigate and evaluate different treatments for getting rid of those mites and chickens. Okay. So nowadays you're working with bees. What uh, what in particular is your research about with bees? Yeah. So I worked with bees, with honeybees specifically for about, oh my gosh, 15 years now, and the research has evolved, and it because I'm an extension specialist who works directly with the beekeeping industry and um, other growers, the research evolves as the needs of the growers and the beekeepers evolve. So I started by studying what are the factors that are playing a role in honeybee queen, sort of transitioning from a virgin queen to a mated queen to an egg-laying queen. We studied, when I was uh, doing this work uh, as a doctoral student, we studied the molecular mechanisms of what regulates transition from a virgin queen into an egg-laying queen, and that includes pheromone production, uh, includes egg-laying process, it includes changes in behavior of the queen. So we studied those processes, me and my colleagues at the time, 
And we, I think the coolest thing that really surprised me and that I've learned is that worker bees can actually determine if the queen has made it poorly or if she has made it well. So, for example, one drone versus multiple drones. Um, so the workers can de determine essentially sort of the quality of the queen mating just by smelling her. And that was just amazing to me. And if you think about the... What do they do if she's made it well versus not? What's their behavior like? So, yeah. So if they determine that the queen is not mated up to their standard, then they will, they tend to replace her. So they will kill her, kick her out or kill her. And they will rear new queens in hopes that the next queen, the new queen is going to mate better and bring back higher paternity essentially to the hive. And there has been work done by other researchers uh, showing that if you have multiple patrolines within the hive, the hive tends to uh, do better. It has better disease resistance. It can live longer. It survives the winter longer. It is more productive hive. So essentially the workers determine the queen is not well mated. We're going to replace her and hope that the next queen is going to be better than the one that we just got rid of. What do you mean they replace her? Like, where does the new one come from? Do they kill her? Or does another bee, do they kill yes. her and like another bee suddenly transforms into a queen? Like, what happens? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. That would be super cool, but no, you're right. That doesn't happen. So they will start making essentially new queens from eggs that the old queen has laid. They will select a few different larvae. All of the, I guess let's back up a little bit. Um, the hive consists of about 50,000 workers and one queen. So that queen produces all of the other workers and all of the workers are females. So all of the eggs that are female eggs can become either a worker or a queen. And workers essentially determine who becomes a queen and who becomes a worker by the food that they feed that larva. So I'm sure um, everybody has heard of royal jelly. And royal jelly is uh, glandular secretions of the workers, nurse workers, that are fed to the queen and larvae and they just overfeed the larvae with this royal jelly that has slightly different composition in terms of nutrients um, than the worker jelly um, so that's how they essentially force these larvae to become queens and then they have a new queen they make sure they actually even kind of push the queen out to go mate and then they will get rid of the old queen they will kill her really? oh really eventually they kill her Yes, they do. No huh. mercy. That's why every time somebody tells me you're like the queen bee, I say no thank you because it's a tough job being a queen bee and you can always be replaced. Yeah. 
Um, what happens once the, uh, you know, the workers, like, what's the time lag between the queen mating poorly and the workers, you know, getting rid of her? Like, does she sense that they're making new queens? Does she try to stop them? Is there a battle for control or is it just she accepts, not, gives in? and? Yeah, not at that point necessarily. And the workers really do. Um, really, workers will keep the queen away from attacking any other queen any other queens that are being produced so queen cells that are being produced so they sort of they guard the queen cells as well and they will it really depends from hive to hive that's one thing that i've learned when i since i've been studying bees that there's a thing that they write in the books and then there is the thing that really happens in nature and um the joke in the beekeeping community is bees don't read books so there's quite a variation in the time lag and timeline that it takes from when they determine the queen is not well-mated and it's not well-suited for them, for the hive, and then replacing it with a new queen. And in some instances, they will not actually even pick up on the fact that the queen is not a well-mated queen or that she's failing, so the entire colony will collapse. Does this have any relation at all to uh, colony collapse issues or disorders, or is this completely separate phenomena? So the colony collapse disorder is a phenomenon, as you said, that has been recorded probably about right around the time when I started working with honeybees, which is 2006, 2007. And the consensus now, I think, in the research and the beekeeping community is that the colony collapse disorder was just sort of an unfortunate coming together of all of these different factors, negative factors that have led to colonies collapsing in such high numbers. And it does have a really specific symptomology. So if a beekeeper goes into a hive that has succumbed to colony collapse disorder, usually they don't find any living worker bees. There's usually only the queen remaining. There is no brood. There are no dead bees around the hive, which is really surprising. So and one of the other things that the beekeepers have noticed that the other bees will not, and even other pests will not go inside those hives as if they know that there's something wrong with that hive. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I think, as I said, we now are all in sort of a consensus that it was a number of things that has caused that to happen. And those are pathogens potentially exposure to pesticides, poor nutrition. And these are things that we still are dealing with as beekeepers and as researchers. So these are all the things that are still impacting honeybees. And even if it's not colony collapse disorder that is causing the losses of colonies, beekeepers are still losing upwards of 45% colonies um, during the year. And it varies really from year to year. Well, has any has anyone taken a collapsed colony, you know, the hive, and try to put new bees or enticed bees to go into it? You and know, were they not, as you mentioned? I, yeah, I, you know, I don't know if anybody has done that uh, specifically, but what happens is if a hive is dead, and uh, there are still food sources remaining, you don't really need to force a colony to try and go in there. They will start robbing it if there are no other food sources around. So if that collapsed colony still has honey, for example, the other bees will smell it and they'll go inside. And it seems like that's not the case with these colonies that have had colony collapse disorder. And colony collapse disorder, um, if you look at some of the... I'm confused here. So if there's a collapsed colony, but there's still honey in it, will bees go into it or no? 
So that is the what the researchers have noticed is that they're reluctant to go into these colonies. But nobody has done a specific study, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, where they try and force the bees to go in there. So it was an observation. Well, how do they know they're reluctant? How, how do we know that they're reluctant? They're just simply not going in there. You can, if you have beekeeping operation, right? If you have a beekeeping operation, you usually don't have one or two colonies. You have hundreds of colonies, oftentimes. So a beekeeper and a researcher can come essentially to this operation. And if half of the colonies, for example, have succumbed to the colony collapse disorder, the expectation of us from beekeepers and what we know from observing bees in other situations is that if there's free available food source, the other bees that have not succumbed to this collapse disorder would go normally into these hives. But from observations, it seems like that wasn't the case. When a colony collapses, how sudden is it? I mean, beekeepers, if, they, if they're working with their bees every day, mm-hmm. do they come the next morning and nobody's home? Like, does it happen overnight or when does it happen? It happens probably not overnight. It does take some time to have a collapsed colony. Usually you don't see that such a dr- drastic and dramatic loss. Um, oftentimes beekeepers, uh, for example, will leave the colonies in their apiaries, right? And they will not, they don't check colonies every day. So they will usually check colonies every three to four weeks. So oftentimes what happens is you check them once and then you come back three to four weeks later and the colony is gone. But I do have to note that uh, beekeepers have not really been reporting that much colony collapse disorder. And this is really something that we're aware of. And as researchers and beekeepers, we're kind of trying to move away from this idea of colony collapse disorder. And we're trying to sort of make public aware that there are other issues, that there are individual issues that are causing these colony losses that are important to deal with. And there is there are things that the general public also can work on to contribute to supporting honeybee health and essentially pollinator health in general. Does anyone know where the bees go when a colony collapses? I mean, is it even collapsing? Or are they just going somewhere else that, you know, they don't they didn't leave a goodbye message. They're just out of there. Uh, chances are that they would not be leaving in such huge numbers, right? If they were collapsing, if they were just leaving and going somewhere, because where would they go, right? Right, but you said there's no bodies, so where do they go? They got to go somewhere. So what bees naturally do, which is also another really cool thing about honeybees, is that oftentimes if they are ill, right, or there's something wrong with them, they will sacrifice themselves essentially for the greater good of the colony, and they will uh, fly away and die away from the colonies, right? So it's really difficult to track. Like you can't really do autopsies necessarily on bees that you can't find. So that was one of the issues that also kind of made it a little bit more difficult to really determine specifically what was happening with those colonies. But you wouldn't just see, I don't know, hundreds of colonies picking up and leaving. That's just not their natural behavior. So we know what is the norm, right? The normal behavior of these European honeybees, and that is not what they normally do. So when you come to your apiary and hundreds of your colonies are just empty and no bodies, um, that's not normal. And you would not be expecting these bees to just pick up 
and leave. And especially a lot of these events have happened later in the season when the bees are not active and they simply wouldn't do that. Has anyone put uh, like a counter on the, you know, the entrance to a hive to see how many go in and how many go out, you know, throughout the day and then look for changes in those numbers? Yes, absolutely. And actually, I'm glad you're uh, mentioning that because there are there's this increased interest in beekeepers and then really other techie folks, for lack of a better word, to put inside the hive sensors that can track the what is going on with the colony. And one of those things that has been developed is exactly what you just said. It's a colony counter or a worker counter. So there are counters that you can attach to the front of the hive and they will track um, how many foragers go out and how many foragers come back to the colony. So it really varies greatly. Again, no colony is the same in size, so it really varies greatly in terms of numbers of bees. And it is a newer um, technology, so we're still learning more about how accurate it is. And a lot of these companies have their numbers, but I mean, they don't want to share it yet. So yes, that's definitely something. That but has anyone used it on a has anyone used it on a pre-collapsed hive, and then it collapses, and then they see the change in numbers? I don't think so. I'm, I'm not aware of it. And it's also really difficult to do that because a uh, colony, you can't really predict that it's going to collapse, right? So it would just be putting all of these uh, counters on the colonies and then hoping that some of them will collapse. And again, I'd like, I kind of want to move away from that terminology, um, colony collapse disorder, because again, I think it's really important to make the public aware that there are issues that are affecting bees that don't necessarily always lead to the colony collapse disorder, but can lead to colony loss. So classical, you go into the colony, you see lots of dead bees, sick bees, um, varroa might be probably number one reason that the beekeepers are still talking about and still mostly concerned with is again, varroa mites and access to proper forage and plentiful forage is another thing that the beekeeping industry is really focused on right now and working towards improving. So varroa mites, I know are a problem. What are some of the other major problems with uh, with bees? Varroa mites. So uh, pests again are an issue. Uh, pathogens are an issue, particularly viruses. Some of those viruses can be transmitted by varroa mites. Uh, lack of proper nutrition, especially that is very important for when we have uh, climate change. And I'm here in California, right? And we see this impact of drought quite a bit on poor nutrition uh, and access of nutrition and access uh, to the bees and not just honeybees, but pollinators in general. You have dry weather, you don't really have the numbers of plants that are being out there in nature, right, that are blooming in nature. Even sometimes if you have plants, they don't produce quite as much nectar. So all of these are sort of contributing factors or could be contributing factors to um, losses of colonies and honeybees. And as I said, really it impacts all pollinators. So it's we like to think about it holistically and on a global scale. We can do what we can, our small part in our backyard. We can plant some plants for bees and there are wonderful resources for um, planting all throughout the United States. Um, depending on where you are, different plants are going to be more successful. And there are wonderful resources out there for the public. 
Are there any crops that for some reason are correlated with, uh, you know, bees being sick or, uh, you know, that bees have the most problems with you know, like um, almonds or blueberries or, or all the so, crops, you know, pretty okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't necessarily want to say and sort of put blame on any particular crops. There are definitely, as we're learning, as we're learning more about um, what are these factors that are impacting bees, uh, these different crops do require uh, different pesticides for pest management in crops. So that could be another uh, factor in colony losses, certainly. And more importantly, I think it can be a really important factor when it's mixed with other stressors as well. So, yes, there are absolutely pesticides that could kill honeybees and other pollinators. However, I think, as I said, as the farming industry and agriculture workers are becoming more and more aware of these potentially negative impacts, they're doing their part in protecting bees. So, there are a variety of sort of measures that were placed, put in place by EPA, um, and especially here in California, they're pretty quite stringent. The CDPR is quite stringent, and we have now labels that are really easily readable to whoever is applying pesticides. So there's a, if it's harmful to bees, for example, pollinators, there's a big red diamond with the bee inside on the label. So the pesticide applicator can right away see uh, that this is not good for the bees and they can apply it at a different time, for example, when the bees are not present or just not apply it at all when the bees are present and the plants are blooming. Um, so there are definitely instances where um, there were losses to pesticides. But again, I think we all are finally understanding that we all need each other um, and we all are doing the best that we can to mitigate and minimize these potential risks from these variety of different stressors. So what are some of the things that, uh, that you're focused on in your research right now? So, as I said, the research is kind of evolving, but um, what I'm focusing on right now is learning more about varroa mites and um, evaluating different types of biomiticides that could help in reducing the infestation and killing the varroa mites, essentially, on honeybees. Um, so that's just a big aspect of the research uh, group right now because it is such a big problem for the beekeepers. Uh, but we have really a variety of projects that are ongoing. One of my students, for example, is still working on understanding the regulation of pheromone production in different castes, so in queens versus workers. Um, another one of my students is working towards understanding what is triggering the overwintering of the honeybees. I have a PhD student who is working on evaluating different stocks of honeybees that are varroa resistant or resistant or pest resistant. We have great collaboration with um, our colleagues from USDA, and we're working on understanding phytochemicals and how they are impacting the health of honeybees. And this is actually in a positive way. We're talking about chemicals that can improve the health of honeybees and help them deal with different diseases. And for example, we're also collaborating on probiotic development in valuation with our colleagues from um, Canada. Um, these are also uh, essentially living microorganisms that when fed to honeybees can improve the health of bees, kind of similar to when we talk about human microbiome, bees also have a microbiome of their own. 
So we're trying to help them by um, adding these probiotics. And a big, um, well, I shouldn't say a big, but a, sort of a newer area of research and interest within the lab is use of these different in-hive sensors and in-hive technologies to track the hive health. So there are several companies that have developed, as I said, these uh, sensors that track temperature, humidity in the hive, count the numbers of bees going in and out. They even are able to um, track the sound inside the hives. And the more information we gather, on what are the differences in, for example, temperature of a hive that is healthy and thriving versus the one that's healthy and or unhealthy and failing, then the beekeeper essentially down the road, the hope is that the beekeeper would be able to check the hives from the comfort of their own home and not necessarily go inside the colonies all the time saving the time and uh, some of the labor costs as well involved with beekeeping. Being a beekeeper is not easy. I hear people all the time saying, I'm going to go into commercial beekeeping. Yeah, I don't understand how difficult it is. Are there GPS devices that are small enough where a bee could still move around and not have like a ball and chain on it? You know, can you put sensors on them or are they just too big still? They're still, uh, from what I understand, they're still not quite the small size that the bees would need to be able to track them. I think there are some, if you go online, you'll see uh, like bumblebees with these little tiny antennae on them, on their backs, and they have a hard time flying around with them. So they're still not quite small enough, I guess, to make it comfortable for the bees to fly so you can track them. But there's definitely a lot of potential um, for a variety of new technologies. I think one of the, my favorite is uh, probably delivery of biopesticides by using honeybees themselves or other bees, bumblebees, I think, are um, another species. So you can apply these different biomiticides in a powder form and they will deliver to the plants these biomiticides, and they will combat a lot of plant pathogens. So this could also lead to reduction in use of uh, synthetic pesticides. So that's it's really, it's a, it's a great field. I've learned a lot since I've moved out to California. Is there any way to identify individual bees in a hive? Like if you look at them in um, ultraviolet, do they have different markings that make them unique? Or can that's you put really... fluorescent paint on them or something? You can definitely put paint and. <laughs> We actually use a lot of paint and you can number tag them as well. So for a lot of the research um, that we do, we will often use number tags and different colors of these tags. So you can have different numbers on the bees and track them in that way. And yes, so you definitely can track them if you want to. There's a lot of drift that happens between the colonies, though. So there's movement right between the colonies of bees. So you do lose some and you'll find these marked bees, not in your colony, but in the, you know, two colonies over. Well, again, like under ultraviolet, is there any way to visually see that they're all unique or different or we don't have the tools for that yet? No, I don't know. That's a really great question. I don't know that people have looked, but I guess now I have an assignment for some of my undergraduate students to take a look. They're pretty, I'm pretty sure they're quite uniform. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to um, I spoke to a lady that was studying the microbiome of bees. Have, are, are you guys looking in this, into that at all? 
We're not looking at it just because, as, a, as you said, there are researchers who are really experts in that. So we are not looking at that specifically in the lab, no. And I really try to make the work as applied as possible. Actually, that's the mission of the lab, right? Um, and mission of the extension services is to do the applied research that will be then able to be transferred to the beekeepers who would benefit from it. And down the road, microbiome research definitely had potential and uh, potentially a lot of applications in beekeeping and apiculture in general. But we kind of do the final steps, right? So other folks do um, some of the basic work, and then we're quite involved with putting the work into the colonies, right? Putting it the boots on the ground, as they say. Nowadays, I heard that it's literally like illegal to keep bees commercially if they're in skeps. Like you have to keep them in these specific boxes and with trays and everything. Yes. Is it just a practical matter or like, like it's what happens? practical? It is a practical oh. matter. It really is a practical matter. Exactly. As you said, hives, the majority of the states have to, by law, have removable frames. So you have to be able to take these individual pieces of comb and check them. And that's mostly for being able to see if there are any diseases, and particularly American fowl brood, which is a disease that if the hive has it, majority of the states have the law where you have to burn the hive and kill the bees and burn them because it is so infectious. Have you observed that bees function differently in different shaped hives, like in skeps? I know a skep could be literally, I guess, be any shape, like in the and the, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the Y of a tree branch, you know, they'll make one or a hole in a tree or you know, yeah, so there so are all these weird geometries. Like how does geometry play a role in the functioning of a colony? They all, so they really all are doing very similar things regardless of the shape that they're in. So they, we know that they prefer the cavity of about 40 liters. For the volume of a cavity, they prefer it to be about 40 liters. And really, regardless of the shape, they will build the same comb, the same direction, right? They'll have these rows of combs that have hexagonal cells in them. They will have usually honey on top, pollen in the middle, and then on the bottom of the frame or on the bottom of that comb, they will have brood. So regardless of the shape, they will do the same thing. Um, and I've actually seen hives and now multiple hives or multiple colonies where they've created these nests in canopies of trees because they kind of got confused and thought the canopy of a tree was so dark, they would think that it's a cavity. So they would build these wonderful nests in these canopies of trees. And then unfortunately, towards the end of the season, the leaves would fall off. They normally don't survive. Uh, but they leave these great um, combs. And we have one that we've displayed in our uh, Laidlaw facility here at UC Davis. So you got to make a hive that's shaped in the letters of UC Davis, you know, like seven different uh, colonies and one makes the U and make, one makes the C, et cetera. It'd be a pretty cool display. 
It would be actually, that's a great idea. And people have gotten really creative with what they use for hives. But again, as you mentioned, um, keeping in mind that the frames need to be removable. So I know there's, yeah, there's a variety of things that I've seen over the years. And a lot of the times they'll have like a hexagonal observation hive, essentially, that has clear plexiglass and you have the bees. The idea was at one point you can have bees and keep them in your apartment so it was yeah people get very creative with these really neat to see but gotta i don't think i keep in my apartment it's like I I'm, gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna turn my underwear drawer into a beehive it's probably a very bad idea probably a bad idea but these would be the bees that just have a an exit to the outside right it's a classical observation hive the Visible part is inside, right? It's like plexiglass or glass, so you can look at the bees, but they their entrance takes them outside, right? So you wouldn't necessarily well, okay. fully have mm. them in the apartment, but you would be able to watch them. So, yeah, as you said, people get really creative. Well, Irina, thank you for coming. I guess we've answered all the questions and uh, even contacting you. Is there a website that people should go to? So it's elninobeelab.ucdavis.edu. And um, if you just look me up on Google, right? If you Google me, Elina Nino B-Lab, it will pop up. So would invite everybody to um, take a look and then take a look at the UC Davis B program and entomology program, because I have some wonderful colleagues who are doing work on other pollinators. So not just honeybees, but um, native bees as well. There are some that are doing work with hummingbirds. So we have quite a diverse group of researchers who are working on different things and different aspects of pollination ecology. Well, very good. Alina, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a really interesting call. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Rich. Great question. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.